0: So welcome to our listeners uh, for moving into the unknown Feldenkrais podcast, episode number 19. I'm Kim McGregor, and together with Libby Murray, we're delighted to be speaking today to Dr. Susan Hillier, uh, who is a a neuroscience expert. Um, Susan's actually been practicing as a Feldenkrais practitioner, I think, for over three decades, actually, since 91. Uh, She's a Feldenkrais uh, trainer and also educational director Susan's a professor in neuroscience and rehabilitation at the University of South Australia, where she teaches and also conducts research, predominantly investigating ways to support people in regaining function following a stroke and other movement disorders. Of particular interest to Susan is the Feldenkrais method in relation to training sensation, perception, and awareness and the role of body image welcome Susan thanks Kim thanks Libby and of course hi to Libby um, my co-interviewer this morning
1: oh hello Kim and hello Susan
0: (laughs) so uh Susan uh you've had quite a journey so uh three decades or so possibly even longer uh with Feldenkrais um finishing your training and um Uh, becoming a trainer and combining this with your academic work can you tell us please how you discovered Feldenkrais and uh, how your journey's unfolded up to now sure and so um,
2: it did start a bit earlier than uh, than the training obviously so I graduated um, as a physiotherapist in um, 1984 um, and had a job in a big public hospital here in in Adelaide, um, doing the usual sort of rotations. And I was—it's fair to say that I wasn't um, particularly engaged in some aspects of my first year of work. But I had this really supportive um, boss. You know, she was head of the a, a very big department. Uh, you know, with ten of us new graduates, and um, she observed some of my. Um, struggles and I actually offered to for me to go and do some continuing education and that was to attend um what the phases so at that point um it was in the sort of mid-'80s, early-'80s, um, Frank Wildman was bringing the method to Australia and he was touring around the country doing these things called phase, what he called phases. Um, they were four-day Feldenkrais workshops, really intense, um, you know, ATM-style workshops. So this was pretty unheard of for a new grad to be paid uh, to go <laughs> to do something. Uh, my, my recollection is that she said something like, I've read about this stuff. I think it's weird. I think you'll like it um so there was a bit of a connection of you know weird and you and me yeah. um anyway she um she she did that and I went to the first phase and uh that was kind of it I was hooked um and uh, you know this there were several experiences um I guess you could say that hooked me um because obviously I'd gone in cold I had no idea all I knew was that it was weird which was good enough for me and um and there were big, there were big attendances at these phases. So it was a very full, very big hall, as far as I can remember. And um, in, and those of you who have met Frank, you know he's very charming and charismatic, and and he's you know he's a good Feldenkrais teacher if, of ATM in particular, a good speaker. Um, so that impressed me. I like the sort of his intellectual approach, but that's all kind of powered into into significant into insignificance. <laughs> Um, because what really sold me was the experience of it, and, and you know, I was lying on the floor just wriggling around like everybody else, thinking, "Oh, this is very nice." Now, I've you know, most of my life I've been very hypermobile, so it's not that the the ATMs in themselves weren't enormously challenging, but I did feel I did feel changes on the floor, um, and I liked that the the process of inquiry, um, so that was all fine. But I think what was the real clincher was. Um, that at the end of the day and I lived in the country, well 40 kilometers away, and I had a car, obviously, that I was driving to and from. And I remember getting into the car and reversing the car out, you know, so having to do the big spinning wheels. And this is remember, this is before power steering or anything like that. And it was it was a car that had big tires. It was actually quite a groovy car. And um and uh, a car was it? tarana which means nothing to an international audience but they don't make the nails holden Uh, and it was a six cylinder so it's pretty damn cool just fyi and um You know, when in the past, you know, you you had a a car without power steering and you'd go and get the tyres pumped up and all of a sudden you'd feel, oh, my gosh, the car's so easy to steer because you've got better air in the tyres. That's what it felt like. It felt like something had changed in the car. So I immediately thought that, oh, this car is so easy to to steer now. What has happened while I've been, um, you know, lying around on the floor all day? You know, nobody's come in and pumped the tyres up. Um, And then I realised it was me that had changed. So I'd immediately thought that because something in the environment was easier, that the environment had changed, but actually it was me that had changed. And, you know, we'd been doing probably, I don't know, you know, the shoulder girdly sort of things. I, I have no, I can't remember what the ATMs were. All I knew was that that this car reversed and backed and I could steer it effortlessly. So for me that was, that's, and I didn't know how that had happened. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't aware of what the process was to get that kind of outcome, other than that I'd been engaged in some kind of process during the day and I felt fantastic. So I guess that's, in, you know, in a way that's a classic story, isn't it, about how people come to the method. For some, it's, you know, the ideas are really intriguing. Um, and for me, the clincher was, I got an unexpected experience and a personal experience um, that I couldn't account for. So I was really intrigued. Um, yeah, so that's that's the first thing. And then, of course, he came back and did another phase. I did another phase. Um, then I did like everybody else, finished, finished a year of work and went and worked overseas and travelled a lot. And then when I came back... Um, they were starting the trainings. And so the first training in Sydney had just started when I got back from overseas and the one in Melbourne was about to start. So I leapt onto that and um, joined in, Um, which was, you know, kind of a tough time to be doing it because it's not like I had a lot of um, work or, you know, stability or, but it, it just was the right thing to do. I guess the other thing that helped me decide to do the training program itself was that I'd also had a really big car accident around that time before I went off traveling. And um, and I knew the area that I wanted to work in. I wanted to work with people with disability. So I knew that I had to be physically very able. And um, to be honest, I did the training more as, as an insurance policy for myself, not necessarily, I don't think I really thought through how I would use it in my work with other people, more that I needed to do it for myself to work with other people. So that was that was my original motivation. And then, of course, you know what happens? You do the training and then you realise it's, it's really hard to work any other way because Absolutely. it's so it just kind of becomes so organic in the way that you think that you can't see things in different, you know, you see things in this way. So therefore your actions are in this way of, you know, this sort of approach. So that's that's kind of it. So I still, you know, did go back into physio, but very specifically into um, neurological work, rehabilitation. So not particularly the manual therapy, you know, back pain kind of physio that people mostly think about.
0: That's that's my, that's my journey into the method. Yeah, so that you know that's a fabulous journey, and there's some some very personal experiences obviously that you've had there. I certainly love that power steering story. Yeah but can you do you have any particular standout moments of work that you've done as a Feldenkrais practitioner where it's helped a a, a client that you could share with us today? You've probably got many.
2: Oh, heaps yeah heaps and and in a way sometimes you never really know and that's i think that's why i really i really love the method because let's just say in the past let's just say <laughs> i might have had a few control freaky perfectionist kind of tendencies um and for me that's probably one of the biggest changes in my self is that over the years that has dissolved um and i really attribute that to the method because you can't control control i mean you, you, you obviously are you know a practitioner in a lesson you know you kind of know the lesson you know might have a plan but you can never control precisely what's going to happen it's not that linear cause and effect i do this the person feels that blah 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 so to break that sort of nexus um for someone with my kind of, you know, the personality that I had at the time, it's quite profound. And it's like only decades later that you look back and you realise, oh, yeah, I was like that. And um, so so that's the first thing I want to say. <laughs> so therefore, when you approach a lesson, to let that go and, and and manage your expectations about what the lesson's going to do, that's the first thing for me. And that's, that's a personal change in me. So, therefore, it's always delightful to hear from other people what the effect of the lesson has been. I mean, sometimes it's nothing and that's really good for your ego and you've got to tell yourself, well, maybe something did change, maybe something didn't, maybe they they simply can't sense it yet Um, because what we're doing, you know, requires an awareness that people might not have. Um, And other times it's, you you know, I think probably the, the thing that gives me the greatest joy is when people go off and discover for themselves, and I'm kind of redundant to the system. You know, and maybe that's because I'm inherently lazy as well. And I don't want the responsibility of somebody else's improvement. I don't want to be responsible for their improvement. I want them to be responsible for their improvement. So, as a general comment, my greatest joy is when somebody comes back and says what's what they've done in the in the between lessons. Some journey, some discovery, some light bulb moment that they they don't attribute to me. Or it's nice when they attribute it to the method, but ultimately that something that that's happened in their system that they feel they have the agency of. Um, mm. And yeah. you know, numerous examples. Um, you know about, and often it's more about you know and it'll be well maybe simple things like uh you know a client recently oh I realized you know when I was walking if I you know and it might be something really banal like if I let go of my belly when I was walking I can actually breathe and walk at the same time you know that kind of stuff but that's huge you know to to take something that we've been exploring in a lesson and then they've actually put it into practice so to speak and noticed a change in their functioning those kinds of things um or you know things like or a recent a recent client um who's really worried about her posture and um and after a lesson she stood up and, and i just said something really simple like do you notice that it's quieter when you you know now that you're standing and she burst into tears and is like oh my gosh um well i'm no i'm kind of used to <laughs> we all get we get used to very different responses And she said, that's what I've been craving. It just feels so noisy when I'm standing up. It just, so that, and where did that language come from for me? I don't know. Um, But it just completely matched her experience that, um, you know, it's an unusual way of describing it, isn't it? That when you stand up, it feels quieter. Um, But her experience had been that standing for her was really noisy. So that kind of mixed sense stuff, you know, there's sort of, Trivial examples. Um, in a way,
0: you, you, you're almost—you know—you've given three examples there. You've talked about it, her nervous system. I imagine that quieting, quietening, was a quietening of her nervous system. You've mm. also talked about physical changes, but you talked about—you know—being able to let go of some of our tendencies, which I guess, in a way, is neuroplasticity, um, mm. which I know is an area that you're you're very passionate about. Mm. Um, could you talk a bit about? You know the way that Feldenkreis can work with neuroplasticity.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes now I almost kind of blush to think that why didn't we realise <laughs> about neuroplasticity? You know, when I when I trained as a physio in um, when we did you know neurology, um, we still learnt the old hierarchical. Yeah, um it's sort of nervous system structure that, you know, that evolutionary kind of spinal cord, you know, midbrain, blah, blah, neocortex dominating, rah-rah, rah. And that it was all pretty fixed, you know, pretty hardwired, unchangeable, you know, reflex oriented, blah, 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 all that stuff that was we were still being taught in the early 80s. But of course, you read von Kreis's books and he's already talking about. No, I'm after flexible, um, flexible bodies. Yeah, kind of interesting. Flexible minds, flexible brains. That's what I'm really after. So that's really his nod that, of course, actually, if we can change our behaviour, change our thinking, and change our actions, um, something must be changing in our brain because you know structure begets function. So if our function is changing, our structure must be changing. But we all, we've all been taught that we had this kind of fixed wiring system.
1: Susan, just just on that, that's really interesting because we could backtrack just a little bit in terms of, um, you know, answering Kim's question, how does the neuroplasticity, you know, feed into Feldenkrais? I guess that was my main interest for today to see if you mm -hmm. would be able to um, put together some sort of intersections there. And I, I thought it would be valuable for people to go back to sort of a really good understanding for practitioners and for all listeners, really, on um, some basic ideas of what neuroplasticity is. and maybe what are some good keywords that people can hang on to and um, because there's a lot of, and some of the words that i I thought you could help us with are uh, you know, a question of whether we're training the brain. Are we strengthening brain connections, stimulating new thinking? You know, are we bridging brain gaps? Um, all of this I know you've got a wealth of expertise as a neuros- neuroscientist in terms of being able to explain to us uh, in, in terms we can um, I suppose everybody can understand, but also might be useful for Feldenkrais Class practitioners.
2: Sure, yep, absolutely. I'll work all that in. Um so, yeah, so what this idea of neuroplasticity is, is that the brain can change um, as opposed to the hardwired hierarchical thing that I was talking about that some of us were taught and that Feldenkrais indicated that he understood this even before the science wasn't showing it. And so what I think simplistically what we what we need to understand neuroplasticity is, it, is it's, it's the underpinning of how we learn, it's the physiology, it's the cellular level of learning, um, and it happens all the time, and it's it's agnostic about whether it's good or bad or indifferent. It's simply brain changes, um, and so what we should be then interested in is how to make those processes service well, as opposed to service in a, um, in, a in an unhelpful way. So, I mean, habits ha- habits are based on neuroplasticity whether they're good habits bad habits or whatever and you can think about habits as being you know very well trodden paths very um w- well rehearsed well practiced neural connections um you know you can you can think of it at the physiological level um about you know the sort of what we call long-term potentiation where synaptic pathways are more, more likely to fire so at that very cellular level habits exist and then they manifest all the way through in the continuum to it to be an actual behavior so that's that's what you're sort of talking about that's a process of neuroplasticity that you know there's the use it or lose it stuff you know neurons that fire together wire together that there's a whole lot of physiology behind that and you can look at it at that, at that neuronal level um and then but you can aggregate that up to the behavioral level and that's what Phil and Christ is talking about at the behavioral level is that we create habits and habits in and of themselves aren't good or bad habits are really like we want to be able to talk and think while we're walking so we want walking to be relatively habitual and by habitual i mean organized at a pretty you know at a lower level of the brain that doesn't require a lot of consciousness but that comes with a double edge is that we might walk in a habitual way that's not serving us particularly well or not particularly adaptable or whatever it might be so the whole point then about film crisis to examine those habits bubble them up to the surface of consciousness where we can manipulate them in a way um, but not in a particularly cognitive, interrogative, you know, intellectual way, but at that experiential way of awareness and maybe add, maybe shift the habits, soften the habits, create a couple more habits, you know, a couple more pathways so that we've got a choice about the habits so that we're not locked into one stereotypical, um, seemingly hardwired, I don't enormously like that word, um, way of being but we can access it if we if we need to um because like I said you don't want to have to think really consciously about walking all the time if you're talking or carrying something or you know um you know counting backwards in sevens like with what we do in clinic <laughs> get people to walk and count backwards in sevens why who knows no we do know well. so that's so that's really then the, the behavioral end of neuro of the neuroplastic phenomenon. So you can see, but what we're talking about there is learning. And learning and plasticity are the same thing. You know, one's just talking at the physiological level, one's talking at the behavioral level, but it's the same thing. So that's why it's so fundamental for us and why the research that started coming out in the 80s and the 90s and is merging ever since, about just how plastic i.e. how changeable the brain is, has been such a confirmation for us. And for Fel- if Feldenkrais was alive, he'd be going, well, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, of course. Because he knew it from an experiential point of view. And I think that's what's really interesting is when the science catch up, catches up with his, the acuteness and the accuracy of his observations.
1: Mm. So it's in that, um, uh, you know, what underpins the science that underpins learning, you know, there is a lot of information. There's a lot of research out there which you can elaborate on. And I'm just wondering, in terms of functional reorganisation, which we think that um, or we hope we're having an effect on the awareness of the person in the learning that they're doing in an awareness through movement lesson or a functional mm. integration lesson, um, the the science related to the physiology there uh is that is that coming in now that that research to do with um the way that uh what you know we used to think that we had um just a fixed number of neurons and that was what we got would you like to comment on where that is now with the neurophysiology
2: yeah so i mean we can talk about this at many different levels i mean probably not so helpful at the, to talk about it at a Individual neuronal or synaptic level, but just the way that those connections can be enhanced or not enhanced, as the case may be. Um, your comment about a fixed number of neurons—I'm uh, still very hesitant about getting excited about neurogenesis in humans. Um, neurogenesis means generating new neurons, or genesis is birth. Um, neurons, neuros, neurons. Yes, there is evidence that we do create new neurons as adults. Um, but there's still no real evidence that they become functional. So I'm just saying that it could change tomorrow. You know, we, we've got to keep our eyes in the literature. Um, you know, there's just about a very the, recent... It's all
1: about the connections, isn't it's it? It's all
2: about the connections. So there's not mm. evidence that they become functional. There, there's a very recent paper that shows that even people with dementia are still creating new neurons, in particular areas like the hippocampus, like very deep inside the brain, but not really conclusive evidence that they become functional. Um, So a lot of people are quoting, you know, oh, well, you know, exercise creates neurogenesis, they're they're mouse studies. So we have to be a bit careful. So I personally don't feel that we are, we can be confident about talking about neurogenesis. That's different. Neuroplasticity is about what we've got and making better use of it, making the connections more efficient or um, more varied, more adaptable. And that fits in with the learning paradigm. So I'm, I think we can be very confident about that simply because it makes sense, but also because of the evidence around, I mean, this thing called functional reorganisation, is, an, we can use that from a Feldenkrais point of view. What it means from a neuroplastic point of view is that instead of talking about the individual cells, we're talking about cells in the neurons and their supporting cells, like the glial cells. So neuroplasticity isn't just about the neurons, it's about the whole thing, about the better support for that. Um, It's it's functional reorganisation is when there's an aggregated response of neural tissue or neural structures or a neural area to a demand, a functional demand. That's what's called functional reorganisation and it fits in very well with what we think that we do. So the early literature about functional reorganisation came from quite diverse studies. I mean, one of the classics was, um, you know, the people who were blind from birth and um, they so normally I tell this story a lot. It's a it's a classic seminal neuroplastic study, and it came about when we could start well, researchers could start imaging the brain better. So at the back of our head, so our occipital lobes right here at the back, we were all taught everybody would be taught from a neuroanatomical point of view they are related to vision, they are, they do vision, they do acuity of vision, they do you know all the different permutations of vision color and blah 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 um however in people who are blind when they were scanning their brains and they were reading braille with their fingers so this is a tactile function if you if it, uh, we three could read braille and we had our brain scan doing this we would be processing this firstly in the primary sensory cortex which is here like parietal this part of our brain when they when they scanned the people who were blind from birth who'd never had sight they were using their occipital cortex to process the tactile information so that's an that's an example of functional reorganization so the function of the occipital lobes had reorganized based on a need um which was reading braille so that was one of the biggest and it just blew everybody's heads because you know I mean, neuroanatomy had just absolutely fixated that these regional areas did this. And for a visual cortex to be involved in a tactile function was extraordinary. Uh, so it kind of lifted the lid on this possibility for the way that brains can Whole chunks of the brain can reorganise. Um, we know it very clearly, like in the motor cortex. These are easy experiments to do, where we can functionally reorganise small groups of neurons. You know, just by simply zapping, you can. You know, we can. I can zap your thumb. Um, you know, with an electrical stimulus, and the, the, that part of your motor cortex will get bigger.
1: Does that mean, Susan, that um, we can see that kind of activity on the newer kinds of scans? That are around and then how do those scans, how are those useful in matching up the clinical picture of someone who's had a stroke and the rehabilitation after that?
2: Look, I mean, there's different scans. There's scans and scans and scans now, and yes, they do pick up those changes, but the, the interpretation is tricky. I mean, what, what I'm saying about the motor cortex, and we can change that. We that we don't even need to scan that. That's using transcranial magnetic stimulation, so we can create a motor map, if you like, and show that the territory of the of mo of the primary motor cortex, for example, can change. It doesn't last because it's not it's not a learning isn't that's not a learning thing that's just we've just excited a whole bunch of neurons and they've got very excited and they've you know they've swapped allegiance so maybe you know a group of neurons that were kind of on the borders between let's say the region for the thumb and the finger you know they swap allegiance so that cortical rivalry we call it or territorial rivalry the pain science people call it smudging you know that That is very manipulatable at that sort of small neuronal pool level, um, all the way up to this sort of bigger reorganisation stuff. So, yeah, that's all possible. Now, imaging is a bigger question. um, And, yes, I think there has been an imaging study in Feldenkrais. People can jump on and have a look at that about the changes. Um, I think they were doing some kind of um, – I shouldn't be even quoting it because I'll get it wrong – Maybe it was like the false floor lesson, um, where they were—they showed that the brain responded differently to when they did the false floor lesson, with an idea of connecting all the way up through the skeleton. So the so the intention of the practitioner, and then the for the to, to evoke an experience in the person was reflected in demonstrably different brain activation. But we've got to be careful though because. Brains activating in regions doesn't necessarily mean better function. It just means they're getting bigger blood flow, if that's the particular kind of scan that you're doing. Um, and actually a refined skill might have smaller area than a, you know, so let's not go too de- detailed. But probably the, suffice to say that where scanning is going at the moment is more – in is, people are more interested not in the regions that are lighting up, but in the strength of the connections between regions. So this idea of connectomics or studying connectivity, strengths of connections, strengths of pathways, that, and and, and the sort of um, strengths of pathways and the richness of a network, that's probably where scanning is going now. And it's highly technical. And that's a problem for us because (laughs) for us to do our work and have that kind of evidence, uh, costs a lot of money. I'm just going to put that out there now because I know you want to yeah. talk about research in the future, but I'll just throw that in there. So I think I've answered that question.
0: Yeah, no, that's great, Susan. Um, and just for anybody who who isn't, hasn't heard of the the false flaw because it's something that we've just been learning about in our training. It's a it's actually a lesson uh, that that Moshe Feldenkrais. Uh, developed for, for people that, that Susan was referring to there if people want to go and look at that further. But Susan, um, look, it's amazing some of what you're, you're speaking about that or, there. Uh, and I'm I'm well we're aware that you're doing a lot of work with people who are recovering from strokes and other other functions where you know, other other where people have lost functions. Can you talk a bit about uh, how you're using the Feldenkrais method to help people regain function? please after a stroke or or other other issues that people sure. have
2: yeah so I, um so for people who are not who haven't worked with anybody with stroke stroke is a um, an insult to the brain where blood supplies lost either through a blockage or through a, a bleed and so parts of the brain die and other parts get seriously pissed off let's say uh, <laughs> may or no, but may not be working so um Yeah, and that that can affect any function depending on what part of the brain has been compromised by that lack of blood flow. And um, so people classically can be affected down one side and they classically can be affected from their, they can't sense. And this is because the part of the brain that senses or deals with the primary sense has been damaged or maybe the perception of that has been damaged. And then also the motor or the movement outputs of the brain might have been affected as well. So the pathways that send messages down to the body from the brain to to act. Thinking can be affected. Memory can be affected. Personality, anything and everything, depending on the the area. What we're particularly interested with people with stroke is because they have now this, this sort of maybe a real impairment of sensing, and a a very real impairment of moving, how can we help that circuitry re-establish? I think um, there were so many things that Feldenkrais did when he worked with people with stroke or cerebral palsy or those kinds of really neurologically-based issues was, firstly, he approached them as a whole person and he recognised that their motivation is to function in the world. It's not about, you know, some kind of esoteric changed that he recognised that you know what we would now call from a motor control point of view is the task is really important but the function the meaning of it is really important the meaningful action is really key um he he recognised that the whole person was involved and he didn't sort of differentiate you know carve off well I'm only going to deal with the physical and I'll send this emotional and the psychological to somebody else and you know blah 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 um you can see in his in his FIs how he related to the whole person, and it's just extraordinary, really, when you think about that in the eighties and the way specialisation was starting to kick in. So that's the second thing that I, that I found really unique. The third thing was in within that whole person thing. Um, so classically neurological rehab focused really much on, on strengthening and the outputs, you know, practice the practice the physical movement with very little, if any. Um, attention to what does it feel like now from an engineering point of view that's bollocks you know that any system that doesn't have a feedback mechanism degrades and funnily enough guess what we see with people with stroke or cerebral palsy they'll do a movement if they keep doing it it can degrade it gets worse because if you're not getting good feedback for the quality improvement cycle actually it goes downhill not uphill so so that was just a revolution for, for me. And, um, you know, it's not, Feldenkrais isn't the only thing that's now looking at sensory training in stroke, for example, that, you know, that I've got some fantastic colleagues, particularly in Melbourne, we've got a bit of an international network who are trying to help therapists see that this is one half, perhaps, of the picture of rehab. because of course, Feldenkrais has been doing it for decades, um, you know, closing that loop Um you know what used to be called the sensory motor loop. Now we call it the perception cognition action loop. He routinely closed that loop for people um, in the way that he worked, and that, in the way that we've now, you know, had the good fortune to learn to work. So that's what I've been interested in doing from a research point of view, um, and from a clinical point of view. I guess the uh, and where Feldenkrais really helped for people to understand how important that loop. Was I still remember watching a video of him working on somebody's unaffected side in stroke? Now that was like seriously weird, because um, the unaffected side is unaffected. Well, now actually we know it's not unaffected, but he didn't know that from a scientific point of view. But he knew it from an experiential point of view, and he his thinking was really so simple but so elegant about well, if we want to learn people to learn how to move better. They have to learn how to sense themselves better so they get better feedback. So why would we practice that on a side, you know, which is so diminished and so um, impaired, so faulty, if you like? Let's practice sensing on the side that is less affected. So in stroke, you know, that, that works really well. Um, and that was pretty, that blew my head off, you know, when I first sort of saw that in our training. Um, and... And then you think about it. Guy's so logical, isn't it?
1: Like,
2: yeah. <laughs> why? Why do we think anything else? Which is, I yeah. think, one of the is both the one of the great things and one of the frustrating things about Fernal cross because it's such common sense when you think about it. Um, yeah. There, there we are. We, we we didn't, you know, us sort of folkies on our own, didn't we? You know, we 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 needed this guy to bring it all together for us. Anyway. Um, yeah. So that's the genius of it, I think, is that the common the common senseness of it and, the, and the, the logical of it, borne out by experience, but now matched by the science is just such a compelling thing. So therefore, with stroke, that's what I'm interested in, getting back to your question about stroke, is how can we then help people to get a better feedback mechanism so that they can make better movement decisions? And I'm not necessarily saying consciously, but if we think about motor control as being this sort of solution-finding, problem-solving, dynamic systems approach? How can we help people to get better information so they make better movement choices so that then they can go into this quality improvement cycle that goes up? So um, we've been interrogating this in different ways, um, starting probably more specifically with people who don't have stroke, just to understand and give evidence that if you do simply train sensory appreciation particularly from a proprioceptive or movement sense point of view that improves function and we've shown that just with normal healthy students from a dexterity point of view Um, we've looked at Feldenkrais then in people who maybe have balance difficulties so they don't have any primary sensory or motor impairments but that maybe they're aging so that was another study that we did that showed that yes if you add that sensory awareness element to A movement class so we had one group do a movement class and one group do a movement class that was Feldenkrais which arguably is movement with the value add of the sensory awareness or the perception stuff and of course and they did better their balance got better because we closed that loop um and then most recently another PhD student um Inez Sarada looked at um, a group of people with stroke and we divided them into um they did an awareness for series and a very very simple series, um, the elderly citizen series. So all of you can access that um, 10, 10 ATMs. They did it each one twice a week and a big shout out to two practitioners here in Adelaide, Margaret Mayo and Jane Searle, who volunteered their time. Can I just say volunteered their time to do these classes for 10 weeks? And we compared that group of people with stroke who came to the class twice a week. And the other group, we gave them taped lessons of the same same lesson, but at home, um, because we wanted well some kind of meaningful control. So, and in, in, in a way, what we showed with that was that actually face to face lessons are really good. I'm not saying telly telly lessons aren't good, but this was without having somebody in the room. Both groups improved, but obviously the face to face. Class improved a lot more, and they improved in a, in a functional and demonstrable way. So we looked at um, outcome measures, but we also asked them how they felt, and their their responses were as you would anticipate that they felt better about their bodies. They felt more aware of their bodies. It was challenging to become more aware of the side of their body that they had lost awareness because of the stroke, but then it became positive because of the way the classes are structured in terms of seeking positive, seeking feeling better, not rubbing your nose in what you can't do, but finding out really appreciating what you can do. That awareness experience was turned from a, oh God, this is so depressing. I you know, I knew I was stuffed, but I didn't know I was that stuffed, to, oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't know that I didn't know that. Now I know that I don't know that and I've got something to do about it. That kind of response. So that is just so um the inspiring. results were
1: the results were in were exciting weren't they Susan yeah and that that's a published
2: study yeah that's just been published now people will, will criticize us because we don't have Feldenkrais in the title what we have to recognize as a community is that science isn't interested in dead men and their names and that sort of stuff science is interested in ideas and what that actually means sorry about the dead men um <laughs> So we had to call it. Right. We called it body awareness training, so that people understood what we're talking about. Now within the text, of course, we we say we call it Feldenkrais. But in order to get this, you know, get science as such engaged, or, you know, whatever science is, engaged in this process of inquiry, we have to show that we're not marketing something. We're actually doing a scientific inquiry, and therefore, what we're looking at is training body awareness not Feldenkrais, if that makes sense. So I know I know we'll, we'll cop a bit of mm. flack about that, but people just have to understand the game that we play here.
1: Um, well, I'm not sure that you... Um, I don't think you should cop flack for that because, I mean, the neuroscience is backing up what Moshe Feldenkrais's theory was from all that time ago. So I'm I'm not so sure that there will be flat because I think that intersection I spoke about with, between neuroscience and Feldenkrais, you'll seem to be right on the cutting edge of that, Susan. And um thank you to all your co-researchers and the practitioners who've been involved in the research mm-hmm. because um I mean you, you did a uh, your review article, your literature review from 2015, which has been Um, so oft quoted in in the research and was very comprehensive on the effectiveness of the Feldenkrais method a systematic review of the evidence you know that's one place that people can go to to get a starting point to get uh, a handle and a resource for where the research is and what they can read and um, in terms of participation from Feldenkrais practitioners you know there are we are all interested in advancing the method and seeing where those intersections are. So, you know, what other ways at this point do you think we need to contribute as practitioners? Um, What's what's the invitation that's needed there for practitioners and specific directions from studies and, you know, towards the future direction of what will be needed?
2: Yeah, look, it's it, it, you know this this is a big question, and there's an international group looking at research. Um, I think you know we Cliff Smyth and I did a podcast a couple of months ago about where the research is at, and um, the particularly around methods for inquiry into the into the Feldenkrais method itself. I, I it kind of depends where we want it to go. Um, so Cliff himself and others have done fantastic, more qualitative research into the experience of Feldenkrais, and that's extremely validating at that experiential level. You know what? I'd, let's just call it the Tarana level. Kin, that <laughs> you know, you know what's my okay. experience? You know, what as a participant, what's my experience, and really validating that. The research that that I do is, you know, is more is very pragmatic. It's about an evidence base. And it will have its critics, like like everything does. It's not perfect. However, I think what we can do as a Feldenkrais community is actually apply our our ability to speak to different audiences and to frame the Feldenkrais work in different ways to suit the different audiences. So, if I'm working with a health audience, or an or an audience that wants an evidence base, then I need to talk in the language of randomized controlled trials. If I'm talking to sociologists or whoever, it, or you know you know, maybe creative artist or something, I need to talk in, an, in a way that's experiential and personal and that will require a different set of methods. So we, we need to have in our research um, repertoire that broad range of um, evidentiary kind of treaties, if you like. Um, and, you know, we're all committed to, to doing that. Funding is a huge issue because no government funding, which is where most you know, trials are funded, is going to fund something particularly around, you know, for us around quality of life. You know, they'll fund, um, you know, drug trials and anti-smoking trials and so on and so forth. Um, and, I, you know, I must admit I was so naive when I first started in academia, I did put in Felton crisis grants and got absolutely hammered. <laughs> but, <laughs> so now we, we kind of sneak it in and we do these little sort of ninja um, studies um it would be great to find the funding to do some bigger definitive studies people have you know you can see in the systematic review some great work in scandinavia around neck pain and those sorts of things so i think if people can feel enthused look at the different kinds of studies the iff website has them all read them and see what you're interested in and then get in touch with any of us um,
1: yeah yeah just susan uh, that enjoy. IFF that just for people that for Feldenkrais practitioners know that as the International Feldenkrais Federation and um, we can access that on online and uh, also I mean that's a that's a website we might put as a link because it does have a lot of useful information for the general public too so um, that's a good one and it's a good great starting point because the a lot of the research is linked onto that and I wonder if uh afterwards when we uh we might pop some links attached to this podcast mm. and we might be able to link into that one you spoke about where you were talking about the cutting edge science with Cliff um Cliff Smythe so i think yep. that would be really useful and uh and i know that um uh i know that kim had some other questions because it's just the word train and training has sort of come up throughout this podcast you know you You began as a Feldenkrais practitioner, you trained as a Feldenkrais practitioner and then you became a trainer and um, I suppose my interest in the neuroplasticity you've described for us in terms of training and training the nervous system and so thank you for putting some new light on that because I think you've given people some, some things to think about. But uh, in terms of training, it's all about the learning, isn't it? What do you think,
0: Kim? Uh, well, Susan, I'm quite interested in just your journey as a as a Feldenkrais trainer because you've been a trainer for quite some time now. You're a, also an educational director. Um, I, as a as a trainee, I I hear your passion because uh, I sit and listen to you for for quite a long time and and really enjoy you know what you what you speak about um what do you love about being a Feldenkrais trainer oh look it's a it's a great privilege
2: um you know I I often will end a bit of a spoiler alert for you guys coming up to the end of your training but um it's like I don't know it's like feeling like you feel like your father Christmas in a way because we you know it's such a great gift to give people um to To um, help them on this path, and then and then see people blossom in their own journey. Like I was saying with my individual clients, that's what it's like working in a training program. Um, in, but in some ways, it's 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 almost easier because you guys have self selected and in you, your motivations. There. It doesn't mean to say that you don't you know give us a hard time and question things, which is what you should be doing. Um, you know, it's it's not like you're just a one big gullible audience. You know, you're very. Um, informed and self-reflective, and bring bring an interest that is um, really, you know, great privilege to be um, amongst. I, I think what what is probably the most um, rewarding from our point of view, having now watched the way training programs have evolved over the years, um, is that like firstly to say that the method works. I don't think anyone would say the way that the that, that R training was run, you know, in Melbourne or the early the first Sydney one and the first Melbourne one. They were big numbers. You know, we had 120 people. Um it was it was just it was after Fernchrist had died, there was mayhem in the community. Um, you know, and the, and the people who trained us did us the best that they could, given that some of them had only been working as practitioners for a couple of years we realized afterwards so there was a lot of things about that you know and particularly in Australia so everybody was imported so we all thought that you could only learn Feldenkrais if somebody had an accent you know we we didn't hear an Australian voice in the room um, all those sorts of things now we've watched over the years changing and now we've got this rich international community you know through the training and accreditation bodies that we, with this reciprocal kind of recognition of the way folk can be trained and watching that evolve and watching training programs evolve and keep up with the times, you know, incorporating new ways of delivering material, you know, it, you, you know, online, um, watching new pedagogies come in um, so that, you know, we can learn from other ways of, of teaching and learning, um, you know the Fulton Christ. You know we've all seen Amherst. He sat there and he talked at people, and it worked. You know, great people came out of that training. But are there better ways of doing that? Are there more? You know, because it's different times. There's different methods. So I think that's what is really exciting about how do we incorporate new ways of doing things and still keep the method, keep true to the method, um, it is has been a is really fascinating journey um, because. You know, I remember someone saying to me once, well, why don't you just why don't we just all just do Amherst? You know, just sit and do the Amherst videos. Well, I think you only have to watch, you know, a couple of days worth to realise that's why we don't. Because um, I mean, yeah, they're a great resource, but it's contextual, isn't it? When we think about now how we do training programs, particularly in light of the fact that people can't take nine weeks off a year and just go and you know, go to a gym in Amherst and roll around on the floor and be berated and you know, whatever. You know we do need to be flexible we need to meet people where they're at you know um
1: well you're incorporating really, the, the science of teaching and learning aren't you yeah, in there yeah
2: exactly exactly and um you know there was when one one person devises a method of course there's a tendency for that to be you know you know I mean a worship forward you know big guru How do we not let that happen to to the method? You know, how do we keep it real? How do we keep it accessible and ensure that it doesn't become, you know, a power-dominated hierarchical learning model, which is what things, you know, it's easy to go into that. How do we not let that happen? How do we as, as teaching staff keep grounded and keep ensuring that the those relationships stay where you guys are empowered to learn for yourself, as opposed to us teaching you. You know that's yeah. that's the trick because it's easy to teach. Like I can just stand up, like I am doing now, and wave my hands around and give you all the theory, and you're all very impressed, and you go, "Oh, aren't you a very smart girl?" Blah blah blah. But that's actually not the method. The method is you guys, yeah. you know, on the floor figuring out for yourself, yeah. and then coming saying can you just give us the answer? And we go, nah, or not, not, nah. but we go, oh, well, it depends. And you go, oh, that's really frustrating. Give me the answer. And we go, well, let's let's go back into this process of inquiry. And, and we're not, you know, we're not doing this to diminish the, the, the pertinence of the, of the question. It's more let's go back into the process of inquiry and then you get to figure it out for yourself and then you walk away feeling good not me walking away feeling good because I'm such a fantastic teacher, but you walk away going, my lordy, I am such a fantastic learner because then that sets you up for life. That's what I love about being a trainer.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. And, I, you know, I remember the day I think I asked you and about the, the end of the first year or beginning of the second year, can you just tell us you must know what I needed to do to be able to do that movement? Well, no, I don't. And uh, and that was that exact frustration, I think. And and now being in my final year, I, I I get it. I totally get that. But you know, it must be fantastic for you to to watch us. You know, watch the students arrive. Your little your little chicks come in. And really, what happens is that we undergo exactly the journey that you're talking about. The neuroplasticity unfolds. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the things that we thought were our nature, where our brain was fixed. We go, oh, yeah. actually gosh, look at how I was back in first year and look at what I'm capable of now. So um yeah and, and then of course being able to then become teachers of that method. You know, it's it's just an amazing journey and and one that I'm certainly feeling and I know Libby is very blessed to have had. Um, anyway, I'll uh, hand back to Libby for for our wrap up, I think.
1: <laughs> Thank you,
0: Kim. Look, it's um that's a, a wonderful
1: description, I think Susan, of the development of agency. and self-agency and autonomy Mm -hmm. that happens throughout the Feldenkrais learning process. And so we can apply that. And I think it parallels the neuroscience too and where Mm -hmm. you've you've taken us to with that. And so that can take place in in both um, the journey of a practitioner or learning to be a practitioner But the journey also of an individual taking an awareness through movement class, Mm -hmm. um, having an individual lesson, which is the FI, the Functional Integration Mm -hmm. Lesson. So all of those. And, of course, um, thank you, Kim, for getting a little bit more from Susan about what it's like to actually be a trainer and the learning journey of a trainer, being a learning journey of a trainer. So um, for me, it kind of all wraps together. And I love the idea that um, you've taken us on a personal journey today of your lead into to Feldenkrais and the Feldenkrais method and in sharing your knowledge and expertise and experience and, and your um, wealth of sort of published uh, studies too, which is so, uh, well, it's world-renowned. It, it is world-renowned. It's published many different places and books and and um, journals and scientific journals Mm -hmm. (laughs) too. And I just think that you've... um Uh, you've made us curious too in in terms of exploring Feldenkrais further and hopefully uh, I think you've extended our learning curve and maybe you've bent our learning curve too which is a good thing to leave us curious to uh, have a look at some of the research um, explore some of the research directions keep in touch with the Uh, with that and actively do that, encourage practitioners to do that. And I love the idea of of looking at um, closing that perception, cognition, action loop um, in stroke rehabilitation, but not just stroke rehabilitation. It's applicable to movement disorders and the scope of which we didn't really talk about here but other people have. And how just how much validity there is in empowering people in personal experience to, to um, have a look at Feldenkrais. So we will put some um put some links on the this podcast uh, access. And thank you for this wonderful experience of um of um sharing with you on behalf of Kim and myself and all the listeners. We are really grateful for all the work that you're doing doing and in how you present it um, so simply and elegantly. So thanks, Susan, very much. And pleasure,
2: pleasure, pleasure. Uh, and if I can just conclude by acknowledging that that I've been talking to you from the land of the Kaurna people here in South Australia yes. and uh, I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging and uh, acknowledge the, with gratitude that we have this opportunity.
1: Thank you. And I can see Kim up there on Gubby Gubby, Cubby, Cubby Lands. And I'm on Wurundjeri uh, Country. So thank you, Susan, very much for that. And in appreciation. Thank you.
2: Thanks.